0: Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and if you can uh, put a marker at Zechariah chapter 6, and maybe take an envelope or rip a map out of the back or something and put it in Ezekiel chapter 5. All right, we're going to start in Ephesians 2, then we're going to go to Zechariah 6, And from there, actually, we'll go to Zechariah 14, or Ezekiel 14. But anyway, look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 4. Ephesians 2 and verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy. Now, how about that? Bill Gates has a lot of money. God has everything. But He's rich in mercy. We're going to see why that's so important here in a minute. But God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. Now, how many of you believe that God's love is great? And He's going to demonstrate how great that love is in the next verse. But but think about the two things that we've seen. He's rich in mercy and He has great love. Right? Right? Now look at what it says. Verse 4 again, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins. So His mercy was great when we were dead in sins. His great love was expressed when we were dead in sins. We need to understand none of us deserve the love and mercy of God that He's giving us. You know, some folks were disappointed during the Christmas season because they didn't get what they thought they deserved. Right? How many of you are thankful that you have not gotten what you deserve? (laughs) Amen. That's what God's mercy and grace, His love, is all about. Verse 5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, that's made alive, quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, what, Now, what is that talking about? Now, Sydney, Ohio is nice, and our auditorium is nice, but this does not look like heavenly places, does it? And yet, if you are born again, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ alone for your eternal life, you are with Christ At the right hand of the Father right now, you are in Christ. How does that work? I don't know. But that's what the Bible says. That spiritually we are in Christ if we're saved. Now, if you're not saved, if you've not trusted Christ alone for your eternal life, if you think that your good works are going to take you to heaven, If you think that that, that because you're a member of a certain church or you've been baptized into a certain church that that you're okay, well, when you see what Zechariah is talking about, you might want to rethink that because God loves you so much. He loves you so much that Jesus Christ died for you. That's how much He loves you. If you were the only person in the world, Jesus would have died for you. It's not that He died for this mass of mankind. He died for all of us individually. I love that passage in uh, John 17, where Jesus Christ is praying for His disciples. And then He says this, He says, And I pray not for these alone, but also for all of those who will believe on Me through their word. You see, everyone who's ever been saved has come to Christ through the word of the Apostles right cuz you have to have the bible to get saved being born again uh, not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of god which liveth and abideth forever we're born again because of the bible and the bible was given to us through the apostles jesus christ in john 17 he's praying specifically for you and me right there if i was the only person in the world jesus still would have gone to the cross that's great mercy that's rich in mercy That's exhibiting great love. Then look at what it says. Verse 7. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Has Christ been kind to you? Yeah. That brings glory to God. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, even the faith... And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the only way that you can be saved is by grace, through faith. And that grace and faith, they're gifts that's given to you. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift is not something you earn. A gift is something that's given to you simply by the good graces of the one giving the gift. You receive the gift. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Now, notice what it says. You're not saved by works, but when you get saved, now you're supposed to do good works. Is that right? So remember, salvation is not because of your works. Salvation causes you to do good works. Is that right? And those works, those good works, we're supposed to walk in them. There's a way that we're supposed to walk. And it's all based on God's mercy, on His great love, not of works, lest any man should boast. Is that what the Bible says? That's the great God that we serve. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father... Help us as we study Zechariah chapter 6 today. Lord, we've laid a foundation of your amazing mercy. You're rich in mercy. We have laid a foundation of your great love. We've laid a foundation of what you've done for us. But we need to understand who you are, and we see that in Zechariah chapter 6. Help us now as we turn there. In Jesus' name, amen. Zechariah chapter 6. Second to the last book of the Old Testament. Now, if you're here today, you don't have a Bible with you. There are Bibles provided in the pews in front of you. If you don't know where a particular book is, there's a table of contents at the front of the Bible. Don't be embarrassed to use it. Um, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly. I have a terrible time memorizing lists. You'd think that God's given me a pretty good memory, but memorizing this and then this and then this and then this, it's difficult for me. And so lots of times, man, I am just guessing where one of the minor prophets are. I know it's near here. If I flip this way or I flip this way, I'll find it. Anybody else, you're with me on that? Now, all you Awana kids, you've got it down. You don't have any trouble. Us you know, mentally challenged older folks struggle with this. So if you need the table of contents, use it, but make sure you have a Bible in front of you. Because the only way to understand Zechariah chapter 6 is to turn to some other passages. All right, Zechariah 6, verse 1. And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot, black horses, and in the third chariot, white horses, and in the fourth chariot, grizzled and bay horses. Now, how many of you are blessed already? Isn't it it make you just feel warm all over, doesn't it? Verse 4, Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. The black horses, which are therein, go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them. And the grizzled go forth into the south country, and the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence. Walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. How many of you, that's your favorite verse in the Bible? Verse 8. Then cried he upon me and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. Y'all got that? How many of you would say, Pastor, I need some help with that chapter? See, Zechariah is considered by many uh, Bible scholars as the most difficult book in the Bible to understand. Um, And a a text like this can be very difficult to understand. Um, But... If we study the Bible the way that God has told us to, then it becomes easier. It doesn't become easy. It becomes easier. I'll tell you one of the struggles for a pastor. Um, I think I have five or six commentaries that I read through on this particular section, and not one of them agreed. How many of you are glad that the commentators are not our authority? All right, so now, keep your ribbon or whatever there in... Uh, Zechariah 6, because we're going to come right back. I want to explain to you our method for understanding this passage. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two, and when you get there, look up here at me. <clears throat> um, I went to Bible college. I went to several Bible colleges and done a lot of post grad work and all of that. And you know, I know many of you have done a lot more, have a lot more education than I do in your area. Um, in the area of Bible study and the way that the Bible is taught, and the way that seminaries teach students how to learn. The emphasis is placed on the original languages. So the Bible was originally penned in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. All right? Most of it, Old Testament, most of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. Uh, Some of Daniel is in Aramaic. The New Testament, primarily in Greek. Some of Christ's sayings were in Aramaic. Um, And so the the, the, the wisdom, the common wisdom, the common methodology of the institution is that for a a preacher to be qualified to communicate God's Word to somebody else, he has to be able to understand the Bible in the original languages. All right? And there's some validity to that. I I don't have any problem with somebody studying the original languages. I I did some of that work myself, and some of you in here have done some of that work. And so, obviously, we're not against that. The only problem is, when you come to a passage like Zechariah chapter 6... Knowing the Hebrew doesn't help you at all. It doesn't help you. Because you can read the words, but what is the, how do you interpret the Bible? How do we make interpretation of this obviously obscure and difficult passage? How do we know what the right interpretation is? Now, let me say this. The commentators that I read, I trust all of those commentators. And their general conclusions about the passage all agree. The message of the text, they all agree. But what each symbol is and the definition they give for the symbol, some of those will differ. So what I want you to understand is the message of the text, we can find that and how to understand it if we understand the proper way to interpret the Bible. Let me say this. The Bible says about interpretation interpretation belongeth to the Lord. Right? The Bible says that it is not of any private interpretation. So when someone says to you, that's just your interpretation, well, first thing you need to make sure of is is that it's not just your interpretation. Right? You know, I could say that Zechariah chapter 6 is about, you know, aliens that come down to suck the brains out of all the zebras in the world. I don't think that's what it means. How many of you think that might be a private interpretation? How many of you wonder how that even comes to a person's mind? Yes. <laughs> if you only knew what I don't say. All right. So how are we going to interpret the Bible? Okay. Let's let's establish our methodology and then we'll go and do it. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And remember the premise, the, the, the whole reason for that little parenthesis right there, that little explanation is that knowing the Hebrew language will not help you interpret the passage. So how does the Bible tell us to interpret the passage? First Corinthians chapter 2, and look at verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So we're going to understand the Bible through the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what happens in some churches. The Holy Spirit told me, and then I make a statement. And you have to take my word for it that the Holy Spirit told me that. It might have been indigestion. It might have been any... Whenever I think, remember the old Scrooge thing, the, you know, I eat too much cheese or whatever, and he's seeing a vision. I mean, you know what I'm talking about with that, yeah. So when someone tells you the Holy Spirit told you to do something, if... You're saying that the Holy Spirit said something and it's not in the Bible? The Holy Spirit didn't tell you that, right? Because the Holy Spirit finished speaking with the Word of God. The Holy Spirit now uses the Word of God to speak to you. He's not done speaking, but He speaks through the Scriptures. And that's what the Bible says right here. So now, if we're going to spiritually discern the Bible, and the Bible says that it is spiritually discerned, If we're going to spiritually discern the Bible, how do we do that? A common way that that is, is let me tell you what this passage means to me. The only problem with that is, what if you were never born? Does the passage then have no meaning? So it doesn't matter what the passage means to me. The important thing is is what does the passage mean to God and how do we get the proper interpretation? We've established that interpretation comes from God. It belongs to God. The Bible has to be spiritually discerned and we spiritually discern the Bible through the Holy Spirit's words and we're going to compare those words with each other. How do we know that's what 1 Corinthians 2.13 is talking about? Comparing things spiritual with spiritual. Go to John chapter 6. Verse 63. Jesus Christ is in the synagogue in Capernaum. He's just given a difficult saying to his disciples. And he knows that they're they're murmuring among themselves. Jesus Christ knows this. Jesus knows when you murmur. What is murmuring? Okay? Jesus knows when you're doing that. And he gives an answer. All right? So he says... In verse, uh, let's let's, just for the context, verse 61. When Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples murmured at it, He said unto them, Doth this offend you? What if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where He was before? Look, you don't like what I'm saying now. What if I just ascended into heaven? Now, how many of you, if you were standing there, would think that that's a hypothetical? You know, I might say, well, what if I just jumped up on top of this building? And you'd say, yeah, let me see that. What does Jesus Christ end up doing? Ascending back up to where he was before. Look, if you don't like my sayings, wait until I bodily disappear. Right? Is that what he's telling them? So what are we going to do then? Look at what he tells them. Verse 63. It is the Spirit... That quickeneth. Remember, we already saw that in uh, Ephesians 2. It is the spirit that quickeneth, makes alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They are life. Anybody here want to have eternal life? Where's that eternal life come from? The word of God. The word of God. That's how important the Bible is. So, now what did Jesus Christ say about His words? They are spirit and they are life. If we're going to understand the things of the spirit, we understand them by comparing spiritual with spiritual. That is, we compare the words of God. Are you all with me? Like three? Are right, you all with me? Okay, now, let's go back to Zechariah chapter 6. All right. We have said that the way that students are taught to study and teach the Bible is by studying the original languages. And so the common way that someone would study this text is they would go to the Hebrew and then they would get a Hebrew lexicon, which is a Hebrew dictionary, and there would be some definitions for the words. The only problem with that method is, how many of you have ever opened a dictionary and you're looking for a definition and there are like 10 definitions for that word? How then do you determine the definition of the word that you're looking up? How do you know which definition fits? The closest context. The closest context. That's exactly right. So how do we understand the Bible? By the context, and then we understand... Let's say that I look in my Greek or my Hebrew lexicon, and there are ten definitions for a word, but none of those definitions fit the way that the word is used in the Bible. How many of you have ever used a word and you know the meaning that you intend and your hearer knows the meaning that you intend and yet that definition is not in the dictionary? It's, it's like this. Hey, Nick, that is a bad guitar. Okay, is it evil? <laughs> His wife said yes because he just bought it. Yes. <laughs> Marriage counseling here after the service, pray for us. <laughs> All right, so do you see what I'm saying? Now, now I understand that, that recently that that definition has been added to the dictionary for the word bad. Isn't that funny? But for years, it wasn't in there. Or, hey, man, that's cool. That's cool. Or, in England, that's rad. What do those things mean? Well, rad, short for radical, you mean it's, it's a Marxist? What? I don't understand. What are we doing? We're using a word in context in a way that our hearer understands, in the way that the speaker understands, that would be different from a dictionary definition. And so many times when you read a commentary, they're using a wooden structure or a wooden definition that really gives you no help in understanding the text. All right? So how many of you think that the, uh, that the introduction has been long enough? So now let's try and figure out what we're doing. Let's compare spiritual things with spiritual. Verse one, Zechariah chapter six, verse one. And I, tur- oh, okay. One question before we go. Look at verse eight. Look at verse eight. Then cried he upon me and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. How many of you want God's spirit to be quieted? You want God to be comforted? Amen. Has He done something for you? Does, he, does he, That is our desire. Our desire is for God to be um, pacified, for God to be at rest. That would be our desire. We're going to see in this text what gives God comfort, what quiets God's spirit. We're going to see in this text what that is. All right, so now, verse 1. And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, came four chariots. All right, so we have chariots. Uh, now, I think all of us know what a chariot is. If you've seen Ben-Hur, you know what a chariot is. We, we have that understanding. It's, it's, a, it's a vehicle with wheels that the rider would stand in the back of and would be drawn by horses. So we know what a chariot is, but is that the way that chariots are commonly used in relation to God's messengers? Let's try to track that down in the Bible. Go to Second um, Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, how many of you recognize that is probably not your average chariot? Is that right? You all agree? A chariot of fire. Now, there was a movie called Chariots of Fire, and that guy could run. How many of you think that he was on fire when he ran? I don't think so. Okay? Look at chapter 6 and verse 17. 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 17. Now, remember what's happened. Elisha... And his servant, they're surrounded by a huge army and the servant is really nervous. And Elisha is saying, hey, no problem. I got this under control. No worries. And what does he do? Look at verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. That's awesome. You know, Elisha is saying, hey, these guys are with me. Right? Now, how many of you think that that's not your normal horse or chariot? Is that right? These are the messengers of God, ministering spirits, angels. Angels in chariots of fire. Now, there might be a literary person who's saying, well, I think that that's just an anthropomorphistic statement. Well, whatever. I just know that it says that it is a chariot of fire. Amen? Amen? Now, uh, is it actually a chariot? Well, yes, because that's what the Bible says, but it happens to be a spiritual chariot, a chariot of fire. Um, Look at Psalm 68, verse 17. Again, if you're a guest here with us, I want to establish something for you. We believe every word of the Bible. Okay, we just believe every word of it. Um, we believe that they're allegories if they're identified as allegories. Uh, otherwise, they're just what they say they are. All right. Look at chapter sixty-eight, Psalm 68, verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Now, on that text, it's saying that God either has 20,000 chariots or 20 million chariots. All right? It's hard to tell from the text, but it doesn't really matter because one angel killed 185,000 people. Right? So if he has 20,000 of those, I think that his army is okay. Is that right? All right, so it's saying that God literally has these armies and these chariots. When Jesus Christ returns, He's going to be riding a white horse. Those that come with Him are going to be on white horses. He's going to have a, a sword, a flaming fire that comes out of His mouth, and that sword is the Word of God. And on His vesture is written a name that no man knoweth. And later on it tells us that it is the Word of God. That's what the Bible says. How many think that's going to happen? Yeah, it is. It's going to happen. All right. So now, go back to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1. So it says, and I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots. So these chariots, and we'll see when, drop down to verse 5, it gives the definition. And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of the heavens. These are the four spirits of the heavens. So this is a spiritual thing, as in angelic, all right? Um, so then look at verse 1 again. And There came, in the middle of the verse, there came four chariots out from between two mountains. So that's okay. We don't have any problem with that. They're they're coming up between two mountains. and So commentators say because um, Zechariah is in Jerusalem when this prophecy or this vision is given, and if you haven't been with us in our study, there are ten visions in Zechariah. This is the tenth. This is the last of the visions, verses 1 through 8 of Zechariah 6. This is the last vision. And some commentators say that because uh, this is coming from Jerusalem, That it's um, the Mount of Olives and uh, Mount Zion, and it's coming out between them. That'd be in the the valley of Hebron, and it would be facing the Eastern Gate. That would be okay, except let's read on and see what the verse says. End of verse 1. And the mountains were mountains of brass. Now, I've been there, they're not brass, those two mountains. So what is he seeing? He's seeing these chariots coming out from mountains of brass. Brass in the Bible, we won't take the time to go there, but if you looked at, um, at Exodus chapter 38, verses 1 and 30, you have the brazen altar. And on the brazen altar, it's called the altar of sacrifice. Brass in the Bible is judgment. It's judgment. Jesus Christ, when He comes, He'll have feet of brass. And what is he going to do? He's going to tread the grapes of the winepress of God's wrath. That's what the Bible says about him. All right, So brass is judgment. So what are we seeing? That the world is so wicked that now God is sending His heavenly messengers out to bring judgment for the mountains of iniquity and sin that are before God. How many of you believe this world is wicked? This world is wicked. And we'll see that as we continue in our text. Look at verse 2. Here, now, here we're going to start to get into the horses. It says, In the first chariot were red horses, in the second chariot black horses, in the third chariot white horse, in the fourth chariot grizzled and bay horses. Go to Revelation chapter 6. All right, hold your place in Revelation 6 and go back to Zechariah. The reason I want to do it that way is because they're given in a different order and there's a reason for it. But um, if you're taking notes, the red horse denotes war, war. The black horse is famine. The uh, white horse is conquering by some means other than war. Conquering by some means other than war. Um, And then the the grizzled that's used here, uh, it's a speckled, gray, grizzled. uh, That would be uh, judgment through pestilence. Pestilence. Okay? And we'll see that that is the common usage of these throughout the Scriptures. So go now. I wanted to do that with you here in Zechariah 6 because they're in a different order in Revelation 6. So go to Revelation 6. Verse 2, And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, um, depending on your theological perspective, if you come from a different theological perspective, if you believe in covenant theology, the idea that we are going to bring in the kingdom, we're going to get the world, and we're we're going to establish the world in such a way that righteousness will be throughout all the world so that Christ can return to a righteous place. How are we doing? No, that's, that's not what the Bible says. Uh, so those who would teach that this white horse here is Jesus, they're completely wrong because Jesus doesn't come with a bow. Jesus comes with a sword. All right? So this is Antichrist. And what the way that he comes, he conquers. Look, at he has a bow, but there's no arrows. So he conquers the world with peace. So if someone could come and bring peace to the world, that man would rule the world. And that's what's going to happen. All right, so here you have the white horse conquering by some other way by a way other than war. Look at verse four, and there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth that they should kill one another. all right so taking peace from the earth now he 's bringing war. this red horse, so the red horse is war. Look at verse five, and when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, "Come and see." And I beheld in low a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And what does he do with these balances? It's a scale. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. So what does he do? A penny is a day's wage according to the book of Matthew. So here you're going to have a measure of wheat and three measures of barley for a day's wage. You can't, eat, you can't live on that. So there's going to be famine. There's not going to be enough food to feed the people. So the black horse is famine. Look at what it says in verse 8. And I looked and behold a pale horse. So that would be the the grizzled horse from uh, Zechariah 6. And uh, and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. So how do you kill with death? How, how will he kill with death? They're dying from the dead bodies. If you remember the black death, the, the dark ages, people died from the dead bodies, right? That's pestilence. So we see the definition of what these horses do from Revelation chapter 6. Um, go back to Zechariah chapter 6. And let's see if there's anywhere else in the Bible where it talks about these four spirits, these four uh, horses, these four chariots that bring desolation to the earth. Look at um, Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 14. Look at verse 21. Ezekiel 14, 21. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my, what? Four sore judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword and the famine and the noisome beast and the pestilence to cut off man, uh, to, to cut off from it man and beast. So you have these four... Uh, pestilences, these four judgments that come here. How does the number four fit into it? Well, um, go to Revelation chapter 7. It'd be hard to come to this church without a Bible, wouldn't it? Revelation chapter 7. Look at verse 1. And after these things, after what things? Those those four horsemen, right? And after these things, I saw what? Four angels. You see that number four again. Those four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So you have, remember, in the Bible, repetition is God's volume control. When God wants to emphasize something, He does it through repetition. So what do we have here? Four. Four. All right? And not only that, but earth. So four is the number of the earth. So the four corners of the earth, the four points on the compass, all of that, that's, when God talks about that, it's something that's going to go through all of the earth. So when these angels come, when this destruction come, it's destruction, that come, this judgment will come all over the Earth. you say, Pastor, how do I know that it's judgment, that those two mountains and the brass, it's God's righteousness and judging the, the nations and all of that? Go to Psalm chapter 68. I'm sorry, Psalms 36. Psalm 36. Verse 6, Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep, O Lord. Thou preservest man and beast. All right, so His righteousness is like great mountains. Our Our sin is before Him in these mountains of brass and these chariots come out from it. And those chariots, they have horses and it has... The, the red horse, which is war, and the, the black horse, which is uh, uh, famine, and the grizzled horse, which is death, and the white horse, which is conquering by some means other than by war. Um, and there's also a bay horse, uh, which is just another form of the red horse. All right? So now, back to Zechariah chapter 6, and let's try and tie some of this together. So remember what we have. In this vision, there are two mountains of brass, and between the two mountains of brass come these four chariots that are drawn by these horses. And some of the chariots have a blend of of the two different types of horses, but there are the four different colors of horses that come out, and they're drawing these chariots, which are the four spirits that have come from before the throne of God. All right, are you with me? And so we've defined that these, these chariots are, are a spiritual thing. We understand that because of the brass that they're coming in judgment. We understand that the way that the horses are used, that that is judgment and death and the way that death is brought about. So now look at where he tells them to go. Look at verse 6. The black horses which are therein go forth into the north country and the white go forth after them. So the north country, the north country. Uh, A lot of the commentators will say that that's Babylon. The only problem is Babylon's not in the north. So that, that can't work. So what's in the north? The north is all of those nations that are going to come against God's people during the tribulation whether it's Russia and all of those nations that are going to come down, God is sending His judgment up there first. And what's it going to be based on? Famine. Because the black horse goes first, and then Antichrist comes in and conquers without ever fighting because he finds a way to take care of their famine. All right? And that's the order that they go. All right? And this has a special significance to to God because in verse 8, Then cried he upon me and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. All right? Let's look at... um, And I'm going to explain that. We'll end with that. But go to verse uh, 6 again. So the white go forth after them in the middle of the verse. They go after the black. And then the grizzled go forth toward the south country. So that's going to be Egypt and Africa and heading that direction. And the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro in the earth. And he said, get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. And they walked to and fro through the earth. Now, why does it say that three times in that text? Three times. Just like uh, three in the Bible, when God repeats himself three times, that's the highest emphasis that he can give. Holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth That, that threefold repetition in the bible it 's a very significant thing. Why three times? because this, this death, this pestilence, this pale horse, this grizzled horse is going to go to and fro in the earth all over the earth. When you look at Revelation chapter six and Revelation chapter eight, what you find is that a third, of the green gra- a third of the trees, a third of the water, um, all the green grass, it's all destroyed. And the pestilence that comes from that, it's a global calamity that's coming. But these people that have gone to the north, these, these, these horses that have gone to the north to bring the destruction, that has a special significance to God. Let's look at it and we'll be done. The Bible says in verse 8, and, he cri- and then cried he upon me and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. What is going to quiet the spirit of God? What is going to do that? Go to Ezekiel chapter 5. I'm sorry this has been a little scattered. It, it, it's all over because the, the, to define the terms. Now that we've defined the terms, I want you to see what will comfort the Spirit of God. Ezekiel chapter 5 and look at verse 17. So will I send upon you famine and evil beasts, and they shall bereave thee, and pestilence and blood shall pass through thee, and I will bring the sword upon thee. I, the Lord, have spoken it. You see that? I, the Lord, have spoken it. Look at verse 12. A third part of thee shall die with the pestilence, and with famine shall they be consumed in the midst of thee. And a third part shall fall by the sword round about thee, And I will scatter a third part into all the winds. Remember that? We saw that in Revelation 7. And I will draw out a sword after them. Now look what it says in verse 13. Thus shall mine anger be accomplished. And I will cause my fury to rest upon them. And I will be, what? Comforted. And they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have accomplished my fury in them. Why is God comforted by the pestilence, the famine, the beasts uh, destroying these people? Why is he comforted by that? Because God acts according to his nature. And his nature abhors sin and wickedness And it requires His judgment. You see, our sin, the sin of the world, is like mountains before Him. And He is disquieted in Himself until that sin is ultimately judged. How many of you want God to be comforted? Seriously. This is interesting. Do you see why we needed to start with Ephesians chapter 2? Great mercy, rich in mercy, great love toward us when we deserve this. Look at chapter 16, Ezekiel 16, verse 42. So I will make my fury toward thee to rest and my jealousy shall depart from thee and I will be quiet and will be no more angry. Quiet, quiet. He'll be at rest. His spirit will be comforted. Look at chapter 16 and verse 63. That thou mayest remember and be confounded, and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame when i am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done saith the lord god what is zechariah 6 about remember all these visions that we've looked at the visions are that god's going to bring his people back into the land the visions are that god's going to establish his kingdom In Jerusalem, he's going to sit on the throne as the priest and king in Jerusalem. He's going to rule and reign. He is going to judge the nations for how they've treated his people. He's going to judge the world for its immorality and its unrighteousness. That's what all of those visions and they're culminating in this Zechariah chapter 6 where God is coming and he's coming in fury until his fury is quenched and he's quiet. He's comforted. What should we do? Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Verse 4. If the spirit of the ruler rise up against thee, leave not thy place, for yielding pacifieth great offences. You know what you should do? If you've not come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, Jesus is coming back to do this. You know what you need to do? Repent. Don't run away from him, yield to him. Yield to him. He loves you. He has great mercy. he 's rich in mercy. He has great love. let 's look at the two different things that you can do, and we 'll be done. Get Psalm 67 and Revelation six, Psalm 67 and Revelation six. That passage in Ecclesiastes, it gives us the remedy. But look at Revelation 6, and then we'll go to Psalm 67. Remember what's happened? Those four horsemen have come. There's been a great earthquake. Um, Look at Revelation 6, verse 15. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and and every free man. Okay, so that's everybody. Do you see that? That's every qualification there, every person. Hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said unto the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? What are these people doing? They're trying to get away from Jesus. They're trying to get away from Him. Look at Psalm 67, verse 1. This is what happens in the millennium after all of this. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. Selah. How many of you want the face of Jesus Christ and His love and His grace? To shine on you. I love to walk in grace. I love to walk in His mercy. What a blessing it is to walk in the salvation that He's given us. As it said in Ephesians chapter 2. To walk in those good works. What a blessing it is to walk in the blessing of Jesus Christ. It's either that or run from Him when He comes in wrath. He's coming in wrath but He's great in mercy. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Come to Him for salvation. Come to Him. Yield to Him, as it said in Ecclesiastes 10.4. Yield to Him, and He'll be pacified. Do you know what the Bible says? Romans 5.1. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? you know what the you know what Zechariah chapter six is teaching us there are mountains of sin and mountains of judgment, and God is going to send his angels to bring horrible judgment to this earth. Antichrist is coming bringing horrible judgment to this earth, but if you're saved, you don't have to go through any of that. All that happens after the believers have been taken out of the world. Amen. I hope that you're saved today. I hope that you're saved. Next week, we'll have a missionary. The following week, we'll see from Zechariah chapter 6, the second half, that they're going to crown a priest. Who's that? Jesus Christ, the priest and king after the order of Melchizedek. Praise the Lord. Is he your priest? Is he your high priest? Hebrews says, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Amen? Amen? He's either your priest or He's your judge. He's your intercessor or He's your judge. I'd rather He be your intercessor. You young people, are you saved? Are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Those of you, some of you have been coming to church for a long time. I don't know whether you're saved or not. That's between you and the Lord. Are you saved? Do you have it settled? Do you have it settled? Do you know Christ as your Savior? He loves you. Rich in mercy. Great in love. Considering there's mountains of judgment that we deserve. Thank you, Lord, for your word.